Welcome to Regenerative Rising, Elevating Stories, Activating Change. I'm your host, Selene Diaris, and with me today is Andrew Hebbard. Andrew is the founder and CEO of Nature's Crops, which is bringing to us a plant, ahi flower, that is going to kind of blow your mind, is my prediction, as you listen to our conversation. Welcome. Welcome. Hi, Selene. Thank you so much for hosting me today and uh, letting me be interviewed. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure. And, you know, you and I met back in, I think, 2019 at the Regenerative Earth Summit. And one thing you told me when we just recently reconnected that I, I would love to begin with as sort of this beautiful um, evolution and impact of the work that Regenerative Rising does in the world is that regenerative agriculture uh, found a very special place in your heart and in your work following the 2019 summit. Could you share a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so a little bit of put it into context. Uh, my, my background and my company grows specialty crops on contract for select industries. And we, the sort of crops that we grow or we ask farmers to grow for us, or we contract farmers to grow for us, are the sort of crops that they wouldn't ordinarily grow and rely on the open market to sell their product to. They're kind of unusual and they need a lot of oversight. Um, so we truly have a partnership with those farmers. We explain to them how we want them to be grown um, and they comply with certain uh, certifications or designations. The obvious ones being things like non-GMO or organic or what have you. And um, we're always looking to challenge ourselves to do better and particularly do better for our customers and their customers, which is the ultimate consumer. Right. And um, it's not been practical for us for, very, for a lot of reasons to shift from conventional agriculture to organic agriculture. A lot of the farmers that we work with said, I just can't make that leap. And if we tried to go down that route, we'd have lost a, a key part of our relationships with growers. We'd have, we'd have disenfranchised them. Um, so when I attended the Regenerative Earth Summit and learned about regenerative agriculture and, and met many of your friends and, and some of the very influential speakers there, this light went off, thought, gosh, that, that really is very doable for us as a business because it's not asking them to make huge step changes in their business. It's sort of incremental changes and mindful changes that are very much aligned with nearly all farmers' view of their stewards of the land. So this mm -hmm. is about how can I be a better steward of the land? So we kind of started thinking about that and uh, went through a process of implementing it. And um, over pretty much two growing seasons, we went from almost 100% conventionally grown crops to, I can't say 100%, but I would say in the high 90s percent regeneratively grown crops. Um, which was a huge accomplishment. We feel very proud of it. Our customers feel very pleased that they, they understand what that means. So a key part of our role is to educate them what regenerative actually means, um, show them what regenerative actually means. And the thing that I hadn't quite, it hadn't quite dawned on us at the time <clears throat> is, the, is the multiplier effect. And this is what you and I were talking about. In that, um, so say we, we grow maybe 10,000 acres of crops a year with farmers in different countries and different regions. Those crops may only make up 20% of that farmer's holding. So 
it's, it's really not practical for many growers to say, I'm going to grow that field regeneratively, but those four non-regeneratively. So what we're encouraging them to do is take a regenerative approach to their whole farm, a, a holistic mm. approach. So whereas we might contract 10,000 acres, we're actually impacting 50,000 acres. Um, so you get this, this great multiplier effect. And of course, then you get neighbors looking at neighbors and how they're doing. And what, what we're trying to also show is that you can make these changes with no disruption to your business, no disruption to our business, no added cost, and actually quite impactful benefits to the environment, which we're, we're now learning how to quantify, how we, how we capture that data and quantify it and demonstrate that actually going through these processes are having a meaningful impact at an environmental level. So thank you. You, uh, you opened our eyes to these things and uh, we came away and we sort of, uh, uh, yeah, we, we now walk the walk as well. I, <clears throat> there, there is really nothing more nourishing to my work and my efforts than to hear stories such as yours, Andrew, that the, the whole intention of the Regenerative Earth Summits is really kind of like a 101 to why is regenerative agriculture, why is this frame around the, this principled approach to place sourced agriculture, where you look at what is the highest evolutionary potential of this place and how can I be in service to that? What are the complexities that maybe are not as well understood? You know, what are, what's the biodiversity opportunity here? What's the water uh, protection and, and usage available? And how can we focus on soil health? Because soil, as you know, especially when we start to talk about this plant that you're um, bringing to the market, its health is going to convert to even better health for those who consume it. So it's a very logical, rational, and also very, um, I almost want to use the word, you know, it's a deep respect for the living systems that we are deeply interwoven inside of as mm -hmm. human beings on a living planet. And that our opportunity, as you were saying, you know, farmers are land stewards. And I think it's really important for all of us to remember most farmers definitely care about the land. Now, are they all in on the same page around how do we really support deep well-being on land? I think that's what's beautiful about this moment in time is we're starting to co-evolve a remembrance almost that the soil is the foundation of life. Yeah. And when we work to contribute to all of the life inside of soil to really thrive, it creates this beautiful knock-on effect that affects everything in our reality. Yeah, well, you, you articulate it so well, and I, I, completely, I completely agree with you. And um, you know, what, what this has been for us has been, it's a shifting in consciousness, it's a shifting in approach. And, and what I really like about it, probably, I don't know if I can say more than anything else, but as much as anything else, that it's not a pass or fail situation. And that was what was a real limiter for us moving to something such as organic production. Um, it's very much a case of you've achieved this. And if you can't achieve it, you're, you're kind of like snake and snakes and ladders, you know, you get back, back to square one. <laughs> and um, so, 
this this idea of continuous improvement and shifting mindsets and making more mindful decisions really aligns with our business and what we're trying to do. And um, you know, one of the knock on knock ons from going down the regenerative agriculture process was we're now uh, under B Corp certification. So, so we're going through the review process. We've submitted our application. And that made us think beyond just the regenerative agricultural piece. It made us think about how can we be regenerative as a business? Mm-hmm. And we're in the business of producing ingredients that we think are regenerative to your health. And we're also in the business by supplying these ingredients, they're actually having a regenerative effect on our oceans. So I just like the whole idea about regeneration. And oh. uh, as you say, at this time in our lives, in our evolution, in our progression, we've got to be thinking about things like regeneration. Yes, we do. And I, I you know, the term for some people is a new term, but the construct and the concept is ancient. You know, if you think about, what that word just says, if you just ponder regeneration to generate and, you know, we're generational as human beings. Mm -hmm. So to be regenerative is to have this different relationship to time and time becomes a much longer arc and it exceeds beyond yourself and goes to multiples of generations forward, which connects beautifully to a lot of indigenous teachings that are always about how do you care for seven generations forward? And we are not accustomed, you know, you think about our quick returns and quarterly reports, we've lost that thread of connection to a longer arc of time, often beyond our own personal existence, but to care about those who will exist beyond our time frame is a really new way to activate us of privilege to be in service to this much more life affirming approach yeah. that is inclusive of our great 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 grandchildren <laughs> so so this is completely uh, well it's kind of a link to what we're going to talk about for christmas this year i bought my wife the book Braided sweet braiding sweetgrass. Yes, braiding sweetgrass. My and my daughter, book. my daughter's <laughs> bought it for me, and ah! we hadn't, we hadn't, and we were opening our little, you know little sort of stockings around the Christmas tree, and uh, we hadn't discussed this, we hadn't thought about oh, it. But wow. they, now, how good is that? That we are starting to think along the lines of giving gifts like this that have a have a deep meaning and educational uh, you know sort of component to it as well so i thought that as you say about that arc of time that's a great example of how we're looking back to prior generations and different cultures and how they view the land and and the passing of time so exactly i love it well Braiding sweetgrass is my ultimate favorite. We have a doggy who can I'm be so, here too. I just, I'm just. <laughs> she, she yes. come on in, have a oh, seat with us. Oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> we here at Regenerative Rising, we love critters, so there's always a place. That's great. Sorry about that. This, critters this, are welcome. This, she turned up on our doorstep. She's 12 years old now. She turned up on our doorstep and we think she was about five or six weeks old. Blue eyes, covered in ticks and fleas and just found her way to our little sort of homestead and she was curled up on the doorstep. And I thought to my, I, I accused my eldest daughter, said, 
you brought, <laughs> got this from a shelter, didn't you? She said, no, Dad, I promised that she found a way here. Anyway, she's been just such a loyal companion for, for 12 oh, years. So sorry what is her well, name? Thank you for a, a Piper. Piper. Well, Piper is welcome. I have cats. They may wander in, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's all part of our truer ethos around yes to life. Absolutely. <laughs> so Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, written by Robin Wall Kimmerer, mm. is an extraordinary um, journey. And she's such an exquisite writer. Yeah. Uh, I literally, I've read the book twice and I've cried every chapter i can see that it, it is just very impactful and uh, i'm enjoying it. i'm probably you know a third of the way through but uh, it's a great book well keep going get through it it's potent it's not always an easy thing to read because she speaks truth mm -hmm. and sometimes the truth is uncomfortable yeah i'm glad you brought that up and thank you for sharing it's perfect right. it's aligned perfectly with our conversation so in, in moving into this incredible work that you're doing through Nature's Crops, through the ahi flower, I, I had never heard of ahi flower before I met you. And I think it's probably not an uncommon experience for most folks who may be listening to this podcast that they've never heard of ahi flower. And when you start to tell us the attributes of this plant, it's even more stunning that it isn't like on the front page uh, as a pathway for a lot of solutions to issues around our planet's well-being and people's well-being. So I'm cueing you, my friend, to share with us the potent story of the ahi flower. Oh gosh, well, thank you. Well, I hope I don't lull any of uh, our viewers into a coma listening <laughs> listening to this. You throw throw something at me if I talk too much. So. Um, Scrolling back uh, uh, years and years ago when I lived in the UK, a friend of mine was a, uh, a fat chemist. Now, as I often joke, that doesn't mean he was a chemist who was overweight. <laughs> that means I that love it. A fat chemist, a fat but chemist. not fat. <laughs> he was a chemist that studied fats. And uh, one of his many skills and accolades that he was the co-inventor of Lorenzo's Oil, that wonderful story that's been sort of made into a great movie. And um, his, his real passion and specialty was looking at the wealth of unusual molecules that come from plants for health and wellness. Uh, and he was particularly looking at the lipids, the fatty acid components. And uh, those that you know about Lorenzo's oil will understand what his particular uh, focus was at that time. But so many of the fats that we ingest at the time were just segregated into saturated fat or unsaturated fat. We didn't really know about the, the complexity and the depth of them. And he started researching omega-3s um, and the health benefits attributed to those, and particularly how our diets are so much skewed now towards moving away from healthy fats that we should be incorporating into our diets. And uh, he said, look, Andrew, the work that we're doing on omega-3s is really quite compelling. There's clearly an opportunity here from a business point of view that so many people are deficient in, the, in their diets. Uh, we're taking too much of the omega-6s and not enough of the omega-3s. And um, I'm a little bit concerned that if this continue, if the science continues to evolve and our diets continue to steer off the healthy path, we're going to need more and more omega-3s to sort of have a, a balanced nutritional intake. 
And the impact that could have on the oceans could be catastrophic. And that's really what was driving him. And he knew that that's a, a big passion of mine because we're harvesting so many fish from the oceans to turn into fish oil. Um, amongst other things, we're, we're turning them into uh, animal feed and fertilizer. And, and um, he said, you know, from a sustainability point of view, this doesn't sit very well with me. And I know you're both an agriculturalist and a botanist. And uh, if you could find something in the plant kingdom that would be an alternative, then I think that would be something worth pursuing. So that was kind of 30 years ago. I'm going to interject right here because I want to pause and just kind of deepen a little bit in that foundational conversation, because I think something we don't often pause and consider are these interconnected impacts. We're told to take, you know, fish liver oil, or we're told to take, um, fish oil, or we're told to take uh, different types of marine-based life supplements for our health. What we don't know is the way that is happening. There mm -hmm. are literally ships that suck the fish out of the water. There are netting systems that capture lots of life and destroys that life. And a lot of it is just waste in the system, the way the system is set up. And when you think about the life that's dependent, that's marine life dependent on other marine life for its existence, then that we as the single species is extracting so much from the seas and not considering the impact on all the other mammals in the ocean <clears throat> and the other creatures and that whole web of life we can't see it. So it's this mystery space that we just don't even spend time considering. So I just want to emphasize that having options from the plant world to provide omega-3, 6, and 9 in the balance that the human body needs. And I would like you to address that too, is just yeah. like how there's this important balance, which is why we've been going after fish for that oil composition and why having a plant alternative could be a revolution for, and obviously we have to figure out what do we do for the people who make their livelihood off of fishing? You know, how do we create new opportunities for those people simultaneously? How do we create a new nutritional possibility that doesn't do that kind of damage to the ecosystem? Yeah, it's, you know, just as a put that into context, I had some friends over from the UK this past week and uh, we went out uh, of our local our near a, a fishing port near here. And they wanted to see it just it was a sightseeing trip. They wanted to see some dolphins once. And uh, we followed behind a shrimp trawler and um, they said, what's that? So it's a, it's a shrimping boat and they were netting shrimps, of course. And you know, the sobering fact is that something like, and I don't know exactly every part of the world chain you know, has different statistics on this, but something like for every 10 pounds of life that they take out of the ocean, one pound is shrimp and the other nine pounds is fish that get discarded and so wasteful. Um, and, and in many ways, kind of heartbreaking and depressing that we've got to think more beyond what are the what are the unseen consequences of what we're doing? Uh, and it's that it's, in many ways, it's that sort of ugly truth of 
uh, having to confront these things. And as you say, there is a knock-on effect. We've got to address it. We've got to be honest and say, this is, a, this is the impact. How, what are we going to do about it? Because there are livelihoods that rely on it. I'll be the first to accept that we, we can't just leave people cut off from that, but we've got to find a way of transitioning. It's no different to what we're trying to do with fossil fuels and renewables. Absolutely. And I appreciate you creating that correlation because I know of some projects. I live in the state of Colorado. Colorado is a big fracking state. Oil and gas industry is very, very entrenched here. And there are new initiatives going on under the leadership of folks who are really about creating a regenerative future for the state of Colorado. And so there is actual investment being made in retraining the folks who are doing the work on the rigs and giving them an opportunity to move into green energy and other areas entirely. So it's, it's obviously possible, yeah. but it does require people to lean in and engage with the holistic scenario and think about, you know, how maybe we could invent something different that is more discriminant about what is being caught. Yeah. Maybe we have, I mean, I just think there's a lot of opportunity. We're very creative beings. I, I have confidence that we can come up with some better strategies than I do, I do just doing what we've been doing forever. We're, and ever. Great, we're great problem solvers. We've just got to confront the problem and uh, say, but uh, yeah. so yes, so um and back to Ahi Flat, you asked the question about, you know, the, uh, the, the omega content and the balance and that sort of thing. So, you know, we, we uh, at the time and what we still do now is what we try to find is in the, in the plant world, plant kingdom, plants that are underutilized offer biodiversity, offer value-added opportunities for farmers and regenerative ingredients for consumers and that can be processed in such a way that they go they they tread very lightly nothing sort of has an uh, you know an invisible footprint but they tread very lightly on the whole supply chain so we uh, we th there's a group of people called ethnobotanists which are like the indiana jones of the plant kingdom they go off looking for different species in different parts of the world and um, we, we found different species from around the world and we grew them and uh, evaluated them. And uh, the uh, proverb about reaping more than you sow is a great rule of thumb for farmers if you want to stay in business. <laughs> and for, unfortunately, for many of the plants we evaluated, we reaped significantly less than we sowed. So if we planted 10 pounds of seed, we harvested five. We thought this isn't really going to be much of a business model. But uh, once we'd homed in on the species that we were looking for, and it had to have very specific uh, fatty acid and omega composition, and one that would pass muster in clinical trials, pass muster from regulatory safety and all of those aspects. And it takes a long time and a lot of investment to do that. So we narrowed it down, narrowed it down, and uh, we found one that uh, it had all the right credentials, but just was a little bit stubborn at growing. Uh, we, whilst we didn't reap more than we sowed, we only, we only reaped as much as we sowed. But we thought, well, we can we can make this work. And we partnered with farmers. And this is one of the, the, the real delights and, and uh, benefits of our business is that uh, we work very closely with farmers. And we set them a challenge to say, can you figure out how to grow this? Because it's, it, it potentially is a game changer 
um, in, in the market that we're going after, but it needs to be more productive than it is at the moment. So we've, we formed a, a grower club and the whole idea of that was sharing information, sharing mm. experiences so that, you know, the classic yield curve or the distribution bell curve, what we wanted to do is shift that to the right as quickly as possible. And uh, so growers said, yeah, we're up, up for the challenge. And uh, we went from something that was quite difficult to cultivate to something that's now pretty much as, as uh, productive as flaxseed in the field. And certainly a very profitable crop for many farmers. And of course, it has this wonderful oil, which I'll talk about in a minute. But it was through, it was through good old fashioned uh, observational agriculture not genetic engineering, not, you know, going down the highly technical route. It was, uh, I suppose it, you would, it would be an analogy to dog breeding, you know, looking at a couple of good parents and saying, I bet they could produce some half decent offspring. And uh, so that's how we did that with our flag, conventional breeding, patient agriculture. And um, so now we're cropping it on, uh, you know, on, on thousands of acres. And what makes it stand out in many ways from a regenerative point of view, it's a very different crop to anything else that farmers grow. So it's not a host for pests, diseases, weed carryover, et cetera. So that's nice. It's open flowering. So it's a, ho it's a host crop for pollinators, bees and butterflies. Uh, it's very, very low input, probably the lowest input crop. It's not zero input. I'd be the first to accept that, but it's very low input in terms of synthetic fertilizers and what you need it to sort of maintain its growth. Um, and it stays in the ground for just about 350 days a year, which is a key component of regenerative agriculture. Always have a living root in the ground, never have mm -hmm. bare soil and that sort of thing. So it, it checks all of those boxes. And then, as I mentioned at the start of it, we looked at this and thought, well, here's a, here's a great crop for regenerative agriculture. The oil that it produces is, a, is an omega-rich oil and it has pretty much the optimal balance of omega-369 for human nutrition. And not just 369, but the most biologically advanced 369s that the plant kingdom produces. So mm. our bodies metabolize them much more effectively than they would say from the omega-3s from flaxseed or other, other oil seeds like that. Um, and, you know, our, our, there's, there's 40,000, 45,000 published papers on the health benefits of omegas. So yes. there's, there's very little dispute in the health and dietitians world that omegas are good for you. There's quite a bit of dispute from which ones are the best. Right. And we're trying to sort of cut through that and say, let's look at this from a common sense point of view and say that <laughs> what we're trying to do is improve the overall omega nutrition of all of us. Because there's one thing, there's many things that you and I have in common, as we found through our conversations. One of them is that every cell in your body and every cell in my body contains omega threes. Neither of us can make them. We have right. to get them from our diet. <laughs> so we, we're, we're obligate consumers of omega three. And if we can get those from plants and a sort of balanced nutrition, I think it has, there's a lot of benefits going that path rather than taking highly concentrated sort of fish oil or krill oil alternatives and saying, this is, I'm taking this to ameliorate a lot of the other things that I do in my diet and lifestyle. But if I, if I change my habits, 
I might not need to sort of take the uh, take the solution that I'm taking. Right. Moment. Well, and I think obviously what's so important is like they're called essential fatty acids because they're essential and we don't make them. Great. So we have to consume them in order to have them in our nutritional vortex of our bodies. And, you know, even thinking about what constitutes a diet that could be rich in those profiles, you could, there's hemp oil, which also is known to have a good balance of three, six, and nine, but that's a plant that has been mm -hmm. tortured by human stuff for a long time. The hemp plant, it's, it could be, a, it's an ally plant and the ahi flower plant where I'm curious, here's this amazing um, ally plant to humanity. Where did you find it? What is it? Where does it like to grow? So it's a really, it's a really fascinating story. And um, we've, we've, it grows in many parts of Europe and North America as a weed that is found in wheat fields and barley fields, but it's, it's so timid and, and non-competitive that a lot of people don't even recognize it because it has no competitive strength against these other crops until you sort of can figure out how to grow it properly. Um, but back in, the, back in the good old days before Google, I can't even remember life before <laughs> Google. Uh, it was called- Let's not date ourselves here, Andrew. <laughs> the Encyclopedia Britannica was one of the, was one of the sort of go-to resources. <laughs> Um, and reference books and libraries and, and natural history museums. And, uh, you know, we kind of narrowed it in from a literature search as to the type of species or the family of plants we were looking for. Oh, and they're all part of the Baraginaceae family, which is renowned for their uh, omega-rich oils, uh, like borage oil, for example, very common in, in, particularly in women's health products. So we kind yes. of narrowed it into that family. And then we selected a lot of different species and really evaluated them. You know, some, some for example, were magnificent, almost like a tree that would, was growing on the island of Madeira. And it, it would be these tall flowering plants that would grow to about 15 foot tall that you would need an ax to cut down. <laughs> so you have to eliminate these things that aren't suitable for agriculture, for, for farmers with uh, sort of uh, conventional agricultural equipment. Um, so we, we found these, these different species dotted around the world. And then we harvested seeds everywhere from sort of Eastern Europe, North America, um, right into Asia. And we grew them in the UK to see which ones flourished and, and which ones didn't. And then you, from that, you select the ones and then you hope that they're going to have the right oil profile and, and so on. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not for the faint hearted and, uh, your success rate, you have to have a big starting funnel because it narrows down pretty quickly and you have a lot of setbacks. But being a fisherman, you're, you know, patience is, is a virtue. <laughs> so, right. So uh, you have to accept that you're not going to not everyone's going to be a winner. Well, how exciting that you started off. I'm understanding from what you said earlier, you're a botanist. Well, I'm an agriculturalist. My, my agriculturalist. grandmother uh, was a florist. And she really got me from about the age of three, having to have my hands in the dirt. Like I love getting my hands in the dirt and the soil and the, you know, and just a fascination with flowers. So we try to over, over my shoulder there, there's our vegetable patch. And we try to sort of grow 
as much of our own stuff as we can, fruit and vegetables. So I'm a hobby botanist. I'm a hobby horticulturalist, but I'm a qualified agriculturalist. <laughs> I am delighted to know this about you because um, my grandmother um, was also an incredible gardener. And I didn't spend as much time with her, although I was very aware of these incredible gardens that she had. But I just genetically inherited her green thumb. And I've just always had this ability and this relationship. There's a big plant behind me. There's I a see big that, plant yeah. over here. I, my yard has become like my oasis. I'm, I'm in an urban setting with about three quarters of an acre that I'm in love with. And it's just so exciting to cultivate life. Yeah. And to, you know, I have a vegetable bed. So every year I get to play with how I organize it. And I'm trying to be mindful of what the plants are telling me, like where they want to grow, where mm -hmm. they like to grow. And anyway, it's I think the fact that you've went on this search to or beginning with that whole issue of fatty acids, we're I'm frozen or you're frozen. Did I freeze or did you? You freeze? froze a little bit, but I'm I, I'm I'm good. Okay, yeah. I at the internet. It's it's a tricky business here doing these things. Um, but the the whole pursuit of beginning with your conversation with the fat scientist, <laughs> and then going on this, you know, how do we how do we find a plant that will meet this this unique need that we recognize could be very impactful in a positive way. So well, keep I, telling I, us your story, Andrew. So it's very I, I interesting. Think, I think, you know, you could draw some parallels to that, to um, the, the rapid development of plant protein uh, or plant proteins in the last few years with, with uh, you know, chickpeas, lentils, peas, beans have really gained momentum as people are looking for meat alternatives. And um, you know, the impact that that is starting to have, and oat milk is another good example for the sort of beverage area. Um, plants have almost infinite capacity to provide us nutrients that we, we've currently looked to the animal kingdom for, whether it's fish for fish oil, whether it's uh, beef and, and uh, pork and chicken for proteins. So, you know, I'm a firm believer if we can introduce more plants into agriculture, more value added opportunities, the environment will be better. I think it would be a great shame if we end up with a monocrop culture or, you know, what's the statistic that 80, 90% of the world's food comes from five crops. Um, right. There's there, there, and they're not even food crops. They're just like the big six, which are mm -hmm. predominantly grown as cash crops. And so they don't really feed very many people. A lot of them are turned into animal feed. Uh, so you're absolutely right. And quite frankly, regenerative agriculture to really move us fully into a truly regenerative paradigm is going to have to also move towards companion planting, biodiversity in how we're producing our crops that we're utilizing for all the different um, purposes, but monoculture, even in, an, in applying regenerative approaches is still a monoculture. So there's an opportunity for an even furtherance 
of adapting what we're doing agriculturally. And I'm just going to give a quick uh, identification that you're listening to Regenerative Rising, Elevating Stories, Activating Change podcast. I'm your host, Selene Diaris, and with me today is Andrew Hubbard, who is the founder and CEO of Nature's Crops and has elevated, as you are listening to us, um, this plant called the ahi flower. So we are having the beautiful meandering conversation, which is what I love to have in these podcasts. And I also want to honor that I want to keep coming back to the this story of the ahi flower, and we've learned that it's able to be now grown um, with generative approach by the farmer partners that you have. I love that you created a growers club of farmers to create a collaboratorium around how can we make this plant succeed. succeed. And I love that you meant, said that this plant is sort of diminutive. It's a, a more yin sounding plant and it, it, so it's I think real TLC to grow it. Mm -hmm. It needs it needs um, again. It's it's kind. This is a big generalization, but it's easy now with the, with so much chemistry, particularly with the genetically modified crops, to be to know one herbicide called Roundup. And uh, you know that's so w when you have a crop that needs good attentive stewardship and good you know husbandry, good good old fashioned crop husbandry, it's great. So. Uh, and and that means that a lot of training, it means a lot of oversight from us with the farmer. And um, as I mentioned, there, there's sort of been a knock-on effect to that, that we look at that from the regenerative agricultural point of view, but we also thought, well, this is, this is hugely regenerative to our health. And um, we know the consequences, I, I won't get into the science too much, but we know the consequences of having an imbalance in fat in our diets. The, the, the wrong fats are pro-inflammatory. They have other consequences. They affect everything from our mobility to exercise recovery, to hormonal balance, to immunity. To uh, So we've, we're encouraging people to think about their diets and think about having a good balance of fat in their diets. And of course, the next step on from that is if you can be regenerative in your agriculture, regenerative in your ingredients, then you can be regenerative on the environment. And for us, a big environment is the oceans that we're trying to sort of, if we can have just a little impact and, and persuade some people to look to plant-based alternatives for their omegas rather than marine-based, it'll have a huge effect. And, um, you know, we are, we are, at, we are at reported to be at maximum fish extraction from the ocean. Now, I don't really know what that means because if you start your base too low, of course, everything is sustainable. If the bluefin tuna population is only 10% of what it was 100 years ago, is that sustainable to maintain it at 10% or should it be back to where it was? So that's absolutely. That's well, that's, that's also the problem with the term sustainable and sustainability absolutely. because sustained is a flat. You know, do you want to have a sustained relationship or would you like to have a regenerative, regenerative one? one? Yeah. Absolutely. So, so we're thinking if we can nibble away at that through offering plant-based alternatives that are, that are clinically backed, you know, clearly safe, uh, clearly um, meeting consumer preferences. Consumers want to move towards uh, plant-based. They want traceable, they want plant-based, they want regenerative. So, you know, in our own small little way, I think if we can sort of have an impact uh, of reducing some of the pressures on the ocean, 
the abundant marine life that will benefit from that. And, and you start out by very eloquently saying that uh, those fish, those sort of the anchovies, the menhaden, the pilchards, are such a critical link in the food chain. These are the alchemists of the ocean that convert the phytoplankton to protein and oil and become the predominant source of food for higher fish and mammals, whether it's orca, whether it's dolphins, whether it's humpback whales, whether it's albatrosses. And um, so, yeah, the, again, it's that consequence, thinking about what is the consequence of our actions. And uh, in our own little way, if we can, um, beyond my life, I mean, this is, this is, this is not a, this is not a, it's a business. It has to be, so it has to be sustainable from a business point of view, but this, this is, I believe a legacy uh, that my team are creating with me and um, maybe two, three generations from now, our ahi flower will be grown on hundreds of thousands, millions of acres. And if it does, that will have a really meaningful impact in the three areas that I mentioned, agriculture, human health and wellness, and ocean abundance. And, um, you know, may, maybe we can look down upon it and think, well, good, good job. You know, you, we, you, I think we, we all feel that we need to be pioneers and leaders in, in areas that we can make a difference in. That's right. I, yes. And I think, you know, one of the things that I, I am fascinated by, for example, with learning about oceans is like whales, just like wolves, we've seen in ecosystems where wolves are reintroduced, the health of the ecosystem radically improves because of patterns of behavior by those animals that are predated. So they can't hang out and damage the waterways, they have to keep moving. And that has restored uh, whole estuary systems in areas where wolves have been brought back. Yeah. Whales contribute, interestingly, to the entire current structural, like they have a similar role as wolves in terms of the water ecosystem and how their movements through water have an effect on the ecosystem in that marine environment where, where they are, which when you think about it, it's just like, wow, Everything is designed with such exquisite it's balance. All interconnected and balanced. Absolutely, it's, it's fascinating. It's, I didn't know is. that, but I can I can well believe it. We're 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 scratching the surface of our understanding of the natural world, and uh, we need more people we like are, Sir David, and I, I Sir hope David Attenborough <laughs> to tell us. Oh yes, God bless him. Mm. You know, and I I think we need more of us to pause and think about the things that definitely matter to us. And I think most of us, when we are asked the question about ecological well-being and biodiversity and all these, you know, from elephants to leopards, to lizards, to snakes, to butterflies, to spiders, to bees, people, if asked, will say they care about the existence and well-being of these things. Mm -hmm. What happens, unfortunately, is that we aren't really well-educated yeah. as a species to understand all of the complexity and the interrelationships that exist. And that by living in a relational way, which is an indigenous frame, 
thinking of your relatedness to the, you know, your relations are the trees, your, your relatives are these other creatures. And if you behold them as a relative, the way you would want to treat them shifts. Mm-hmm. Very, it's so true. So true. It's, it's, uh, it's our mindset. And uh, there's, there's, there should really be little excuse now with our ability to have ed- information on demand. Of course, you've got to sift through that to find out what is true and not, what not what is not so true, but uh, it's there available for us if we, if we make the effort to look for it. Yes. And I think, you know, learning how to ask good questions mm-hmm. is an important skill set. And I also notice sometimes when I'm in conversations, I can hear that just even that as a capability is underdeveloped, yeah. you know, because if it, questions are, as, are often really more important than answers. Because if you're asking good questions, then you're going to be on a journey of discovery. Mm-hmm. And that discovery process is where you get developed and you start to expand your horizons around what you can consider and what you're considering inside of all of this relational reality. I mean, we live on a planet that is interdependent on everything yeah. to exist and thrive. And so our one species... And you think about we're one out of millions and billions of lives on earth. And yet we have the hubris to operate as though we're the most important thing in the universe. It's all about us. (laughs) So I need fish. I need oils to be healthy. So I'm going to be okay with the, this deeply destructive thing happening. That's creating hell for other life. In fact, there was a very disturbing thing I heard that I think is important to remind folks about in this connection to oceans and especially the foundational marine life, the smaller, the krill, the plankton, the tiny fishes. There are have been people who were birders off the California coast who have observed birds stop stopping to nest and produce progeny because there's no fish. Mm -hmm. So they literally are not having babies and not creating the next generation, which means that's an extinction event that we're observing. Yeah. Yeah. I've read about that. And that is, that is tragic. And, uh, you know, ultimately I think we have to look at ourselves and say, what, 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 how how much, how much of a role did I play in this? Well, we all are, Mm -hmm. we all, we all are in some form or fashion, whether we like me for saying this or not, we're all responsible yeah. because to your point, we have the ability because of our design as inquisitive creatures to be more curious, yeah. to let our curiosity. It's like, if you look at children, they're curious all the time. Why this, why that, why this, why that? We as adults have stopped being curious and we're not asking, well, why? And, and well, why, why is that true? And why do we believe that? And why do we think this is the only way to do something? Aren't we're like amazingly creative, as you said, we're great problem solvers. So here's a problem. Yeah, let's, I think let's solve this. I actually feel really quite optimistic about our ability to, to create, c- creatively solve this problem that we're looking at is taking some time and um, you know, not everybody moves at the same pace. You've got some early adopters, and then you've got the you know the sort of mass current. But we are moving in the right direction. I feel strongly that 
Um, and as an example, with the with the Regenerative Earth Summit, there's a great example there of in our own little way, you hear something, you think, I can do that. And increasingly, I look at some of the food companies and the personal care companies that we work with. And the scrutiny that they're putting on the supply chain of where you where you get your stuff from, how you get it, is it local? Uh, how is it produced? And not just from a point of view, how is it produced in terms of how is it farmed? Who produced it? Was it a minority group? Was it, uh, you know, are you supporting... Uh, indigenous communities, you're supporting minority-owned farmers and that sort of thing. All of these things are, are questions now that people are asking that people never even thought to ask You know, when we first embarked on this. So there is that mindset. It's changing. It's, the pace of change is, is, is increasing. Um, and I think plant, plant-based nutrition is going to have a big impact on that because you have to start looking at the soil, the soil health. They have to look at pollinator abundance because without pollinators there aren't that many plants um, <laughs> we're going to be very hungry <laughs> yeah so so you know i do feel optimistic that uh we're heading in the right direction and we're just you know we're one of a huge universe of companies doing this with different different plants and, and what have you but uh, um i think if we keep focused on why are we doing this? You know, what is the ultimate benefit? And of course, unless you're a not-for-profit organization, you've got to be thinking about the sustainability of it from a financial point of view. Um, but you've also got to be thinking about what is this a legacy business that I'm trying to produce here? What are the ripple effects to, um, you know, to, to, to other people? And um, you know, maybe, maybe I'm fortunate enough in a few years' time or 30 years' time that people say, God, that was a, that was that was, was really quite an undertaking to go through that whole process and now look at the benefit that it's having on human health and planetary health and ocean health. That, that, would, that would be job well done for, for my team and myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I am an ally to what you're doing and I'm going to be facilitating many introductions. That, to means, a lot to, that means an awful lot to me, Selene. Well, it means a lot to me because of everything, you know, I'm, I'm saying in this conversation, it's all clear how important it is that we start to elevate really beautiful opportunities to reinvent things that we're doing so that we can find what, you know, again, this is that holistic regeneration, regenerativeness is a holistic systems living systems worldview. It is an indigenous worldview fundamentally. Mm -hmm. So it acknowledges the interconnectedness. It acknowledges the interrelatedness. It acknowledges that without that due attention to all of these interweaving systems that take place in a single spot on this planet, every spot on this planet is deeply complex. And there is this whole cacophony of life happening wherever we are, even if you're in a desert, there's life, oh, some form of yeah. life. So it's kind of like, what a beautiful opportunity. And I'm with you. I, I have a lot of faith in our species and our capacity to take on the challenge of this moment. And I think we've all been shaken by COVID. It changed perspective in that we really are one group on this one planet and we're vulnerable in ways maybe we didn't fully appreciate. And I think that helps 
make these kinds of conversations that we're having and that we're stewarding through our various activities and our work, that there's a little bit more receptivity. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit more of an awareness because you, you have all the beautiful stories of what happened when people were off the streets and suddenly the animals are like, woohoo, <laughs> we're coming out. And the, the dolphins are swimming into places where people had never seen them. But it was just like our stillness, our pause also gave us an opportunity to see what nature's power is in recovery. We have an amazing ally in the force of life itself. What do they say about mines and parachutes that uh, they work best when they're open? No, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Otherwise, boom. <laughs> exactly. Well, I am deeply grateful to having this time with you today, Andrew. And I have no doubt that this is going to be a very well-regarded conversation in our podcast series. So I'm so grateful that we've had it. And I just want to remind folks that, you know, this ahi flower plant, I guess that's just before we close, where can we get this? So I shouldn't put a plug in for Amazon, but I think, you know, you'll, you'll find it at many supplement, many supplement brands have ahi flower as the, as the preferred vegan multi-omega or omega-3 ingredient. So uh, often go to your own brand that you like and say, hey, I'd like to get ahi flour would be a great plug for us. But uh, you can Google it and see, see where you can get it. Or on Amazon, if you put in either plant-based omegas or ahi flour, there, there are many retailers there. And, and all ahi flour that you see on different brands will be the same oil. There's, it came from us and our farmers that grew it and, and processed it. So there's a, there's a direct traceability back to the fields where we grew it in the UK, but you can find it online. I love that. So if you find ahi flower, it's come from nature's crops because you are the cultivators of this plant. And you are also working to create the market for this plant by communicating with the different manufacturers out there to say, hey, here's this beautiful opportunity for you to bring a plant-based omega-369 rich oil into your product lines. And, and, and yes, ab- absolutely. Thank, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about that, actually, because so much of our effort has gone into the science of proving that ahi flower can deliver all of your daily omega requirements to meet all of your sort of health, health needs. Unless, of course, there's a, a, you're, you're compromised in certain areas and somebody says, you know, you, you certainly need this. But for, but for most of us, for our day-to-day maintenance and well-being and optimal health, ahi flour can deliver all of our omega needs. And, you know, we've invested very heavily in the science to demonstrate that. So going back to a point we touched on earlier, so much of our job now is to educate people that you can take this and you can take it confidently Confidence coming from the fact that you know from a health point of view, it's going to you know, de- deliver what you're looking for. From a safety point of view, it's not going to have any of the stuff that you might have heard about in other Omega products. Uh, and from a, a regenerative and environmental point of view, it's also going to have a sort of positive impact. And lastly, it tastes good, which you can't say about a lot of Omega products. No, you cannot. And, <laughs> and then, you know, if you love the oceans, and you care about the web of life in our oceans, you're also going to be being someone, one less person 
leaning on the marine life for their omega um, nourishment. Yeah. And it's also, it can be a powder. It can be a, so we, we've developed a powder product that can be added to smoothies and uh, you, you can bake with it. You can make, you know, the sort of protein snack bars um, and it's dispersible in a liquid if you want to sort of stir it in with your plant-based beverage or what have you. So a powder is, is a very versatile delivery system. Um, and often it ends up also in, in soft gels where people take a soft gel or straight as a culinary oil. You know, we, we incorporate it into uh, salad dressing blends and oil blends like that. That's a very, very early stage emerging market for us. But it's a great complement. As you said, hemp oil is a great is a great seed oil, very healthy flaxseed, chia seed. There's many other sources of healthy oils there that collectively all go to rebalancing our uh, fat intake. And uh, what we're trying to do is just make it easy for people. It's taking, right. taking a soft gel supplement every day is not an easy regime. If you travel a lot and, you know, life gets in the way of doing things like that. So, you know, just try to d deliver it in as many ways as possible. And maybe if we can replace a little bit of some of the commodity oils, the soybean oil, the corn oil that people take with something a little bit healthier, I think the outcomes from our overall health and wellness will be huge. I agree. I mean, the brain is so dependent mm -hmm. on fatty acids to be healthy and robust. So it's like, how much more of an incentive could there be to think about you want your brain who's, you know, doing a lot of important work yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. to be healthy some and vibrant. Than, some more than others. But, <laughs> some uh... more than others, but even whatever, you know, <laughs> our brains are, are a pretty important part of ourselves and the heart and all the other aspects that the, the as you said, every cell has some omega-3. Yeah. And we got a lot of those. Yeah, we have. We have. And, and we're regenerating them all the time. So every time <laughs> your cells turn over, it's got to have an ongoing flow. It's not so like I can take my annual requirement on New Year's Day and chug it down and then I'm done. <laughs> it's right. got to, we're replacing cells. We're, we're exercising cells. Are, are, you know, they, they multiply, they atrophy, they die. And we've got to keep that regenerative. So it's, it's, a, it's a, this is, we're, we're investing in our biggest asset, right? That's right. <laughs> that's right. want to look health. after it. There is nothing more precious than health. And as someone who is a cancer thriver, I can say it, health is everything. Mm -hmm. There is nothing more precious in our experience as a living person presence is to be healthy. I agree. So I appreciate your dedication to this beautiful constellation of effort. And I, I, I am certain that you have really beautifully conveyed the, the broad intentionality behind this work that you've been pursuing for these many years. And that here we are getting to talk about this plant that has so many attributes and I'm so honored that we got to talk about it here uh, on the regenerative rising podcast. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Selene. And, and keep up the excellent work. As I say, this wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation if we hadn't met at the conference that you organized and hosted a few years ago. And uh, I love seeing your podcasts and the other speakers and just learning about their, their view of the world and uh, um, you know, different perspectives on things. So I appreciate it greatly. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. 
Mm, my deep pleasure. You've been listening to Regenerative Rising, Elevating Stories, Activating Change podcast. I'm your host, Selene Diaris, founder and executive director of Regenerative Rising. And with me today has been Andrew Hubbard, who is the founder and CEO of Nature's Crops. And really the dude with his team who has brought us the ahi flower to be part of our regime for our health and well-being. Thank you so much. Thank you.